Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dole. The air raid sirens filled the chilled February air through the city streets of Prague. It was a normal sound in occupied Czechoslovakia during wartime, but only a few treated it seriously. But those that did headed for the bomb shelters. Time and time again, these same sirens would sound and in several minutes would discontinue with an all clear. Yet this was not the case on Wednesday, February 14, 1945. On this day, the United States 398th B-17 bomber group would unleash hell on the city below. An estimated 152 tons of bombs would fall on Prague, killing 701 civilians and wreaking havoc along the Vltava River. This bomber group should never have been this far south on their designated target run of Dresden, Germany. Several errors placed them above Nazi-occupied Prague, a city that was previously spared of most Allied bombing runs. The American 8th Air Force sent up 40 B-17 bombers in windy and overcast conditions that February 14th, with a carpet bombing mission meant for Dresden. Instead, the payload was dropped on Prague, and specifically the areas of Radlice and then Shmikov, hitting the areas between Pulaski Bridge and Flora. Apart from Venerati, it also hit parts of Newtown, Versavitsa, Nusla, and Zhishkov. The bombing resulted in the deaths of over 700 people and wounding 1,184. About 100 houses and historical sites were totally destroyed, and another 200 were heavily damaged. All the casualties were civilians, and not one of the city's factories, which might have been used by the Wehrmacht, were damaged. Many homes and national sites were destroyed. Today, the damage from the bombing run is not seen as in monuments or built over parts of green space. Today, many of these locations were built over with residential housing or well-known modern buildings, such as the Dancing House or the Amalsi Church. Yet the scars still remain in those that lived through that day that the Czechs call Ugly Wednesday. Good evening from Prague and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Germany Podcast. Travis, many historians have weighed in on the Allied bombing of Dresden, Germany. It was a horrific chapter in a horrific conflict. But few know of the mistakes made by bombing the city of Prague in that mid-February of 1945. Dresden at that point, it didn't have a lot of military significance, but it was just... At this point, it was a tit-for-tat kind of thing. So um, it was just, we're going to level the city. You know, you're, you're leveling London, so we're going to level Dresden um, and Berlin and several others. Yeah, well, actually, and Travis, you're, you're right. Uh, this was a, uh, I, I think it, many historians will look at it this way, is that it wasn't a tactical 
bombing run. Yeah, yeah. Dresden, there was no military significance. It was, in fact, it was a cultural mecca in some ways. Like there was a lot of historic buildings there, and it was a big part of. I, I I've been I've been to Dresden a couple times, and and it really is powerful to see the city that's been rebuilt relatively recently in the in the t late twentieth century, uh, in the nineteen nineties, going into the early two thousands. If you can imagine being just devastated, there was nothing left. There was mm -hmm. just nothing left. And the, the incendiary bombs that the Allied forces were dropping, the British and the Americans were dropping on Dresden, uh, was uh, complete. But in Dresden, I mean, it was, it was really a horrific thing. You know, it's hard to debate. If you want to debate whether it was justified or not, that's a whole different conversation. Sure. But it was horrific in many ways, kind of like the firebombing of Tokyo was horrific, that it, it wasn't just a nuclear bomb being dropped in Nagasaki and, and just it's all over in a, in a blink of an eye. But in Dresden, it was day after day, night after night, air raids in the, in the daytime by British or Americans, and then the other guys would come at night and do it again. And so like every couple hours, there'd be some bombing. And if you manage to survive the actual blast, the thing about these incendiary blasts is that Dresden actually, we created artificial firestorms. And these firestorms, it's almost like a, a tornado of fire, so to speak. Like it just, it sucks up all the air and oxygen towards the flame. And so you might survive the blast. You might survive the fire. Um, you know, there's like horrible stories of, of bodies being found in the fountains because they would just, you know, and, and the, the water in the fountains would boil away. But what you wouldn't survive even sometimes in the bomb shelters or in basements or in the subway stations or whatever, is the air being sucked away. So, so it was such a firestorm. That, that's a real term. If people look up what a firestorm means, that's what it is. the temperatures and the, the winds and everything that is created by this is, is just off the charts. It's incredible. So you could be underground, safely tucked away, but the air would be sucked out of the room. And many of the casualties actually came from suffocation you know, completely safe from any sort of bombs. And th this is also a hard thing to deal with, too, because you're talking about a, a majority of refugees from Berlin that were coming down to Dresden uh, because there were men that were women and children. People recognized, Germans recognized, that Dresden was not a military target. So why would, we, and why would anybody bomb them? You know, there's no factories in the city. There were some on the outskirts, you know, to be fair, but um, there's no industry in the city. It's just a cultural town. This was total warfare. And, yeah. and, and the sense of, of what we're talking about is Prague's unfortunate aspect of being so close to Dresden and unfortunately from 30,000 feet looking much like Dresden with the Vltava River versus the Elbe River up in Dresden that uh, these things could happen. And we'll talk about these errors that led to this. Here's the interesting yeah. thing is that you mentioned, well, like 40 bombers bombing Dresden. Outside of the firestorm, that's something crazy. But just your average bomb run of 40 bombers, the casualties would be right around zero. I mean, a couple people die every time. It wasn't about the civilian casualties. It was in some sad degree, but really it was about destroying the city itself. In Prague, you mentioned 700 casualties. Why? Well, yeah, the reason why, it was, why, the, why the casualty figures were so high was that the Prague residents never really expected this bombing. Mm -hmm. you know, so they failed to take, take uh, heed to the air raid uh, warning uh, sirens seriously and, and, of course, didn't head for shelter. Um, after all, Prague had survived the war almost completely intact, so therefore there, none, of the, none of the central city nor the outlying residential areas possessed any really strategic value for the Allies to bomb. And keep in mind, Czechoslovakia was really a friend to the United States. 
Yeah. There, there have been there's many many stories that someone would be inside the uh, factory that the the Nazis had the the Czechs working on. It was almost slave labor almost. Yeah. And someone would be inside the factory, and they would they would somehow get a radio communique to to the powers that be in the Allied forces saying, okay, don't bomb on Wednesday, bomb on Thursday when we have a fluctuating day day that's a down day. Mm-hmm. So there's not many workers here mm-hmm. because the Nazis would fl- fluctuate those those off days. Yeah. And so the, it worked out that the message would get there so that the casualties were much lower. There was a friendship that the Allies had with the Czechs. So that's another reason why we don't think, and I say we, me, that I really don't think that this was an, an intentional issue. And we'll get to that shortly about if it was intentional or not intentional. Yet the carpet bombing left many bad feelings in the city, of course, which later the communist regime uh, exploited for the, all its worst. You can still come across that to this day. You bet. Once in a while. I know you're going to talk about whether it's intentional or not, but still, it's you know it was one bombing raid, and um, fair enough, all the casualties were civilians, but it was nothing compared to Dresden or anything else. But because of that communist propaganda, you know it was really taken up as like, are those guys your friends? Because look what they did yeah, to, ex- to a historic part of town. Exactly. You know? Now, there were bombing runs that were significant on factories in 1945 by yeah. the American, um, especially the 398th, a very famous bomb group out of England, uh, that, that included bombing runs in Pilsen, mm-hmm. in the factory work for Škoda, mm-hmm. as well as uh, up in Most, which is on the border mm-hmm. of Germany and, and Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic today. And those were, you know, what we could call legitimate targets in, in the Czech area. But, of course, Prague got the brunt of this particular one. And the Americans voiced their regrets many times. Uh, the history of the 398th Bombardment Group based at the RAF Nut Hampstead field, which carried out the raid, indicates that the attack, of course, was an accident in their viewpoint. The radar navigational equipment on the aircraft was not functioning correctly. High winds and route produced a dead reckoning navigational error of some 70 miles, some say 100 miles. Mm-hmm. That would take them off course from Dresden. This caused the formation to arrive over the supposed target, which was b- believed to be Dresden, at the time of the bombing was commenced. Prague was most, uh, most, most likely obscured by broken clouds up until the last minute of the bombing trigger, and occasional glimpses of the Vltava River were seen. Additionally, Prague and Dresden, of course, look very similar, and they do from a map. Take a look mm-hmm. at Google Maps. You'll, yeah. They look very much similar to what's on both sides of a bending river, the Elbe River versus the Vltava here in Prague. The bombing was carried out as a blind attack without using the radar attack, the radar that they needed. After the war, the Americans were billed, believe it or not, for some of the damage sustained by the historical buildings. And their raid was used, as we said, not only by anti-American propaganda by the Nazis, but also by the communist regime. That gives you kind of that feeling of, of who is really to blame. We're going to talk about that in tonight's podcast. I'm going to give you as many facts as I could find to give you an idea about where the blame really should go. You know, Travis, before we get into some some of the accounts by some of the navigators on some of these ships, as well as what you heard from the ground, let's just talk about some of the basics that you have on the aircraft of 1945, Boeing B-17s, that give you an idea about what could go wrong and what the results might be. First of all, we're going to be talking about something called the AS-15, which some of the navigators called Mickey, mm-hmm. all right, Mickey units. These are, the, these are the radar units that usually work great. But this particular bomb run, they failed. They failed on almost every ship that was up there. So that was a big, big, big problem. The Norton bomb site was one, uh, basically an early computer in 1945 that was used 
for the for the American strategic running during daylight bombing, presidential bombing. Mm-hmm. This is extremely important, folks, because at the time during the middle of the war, the British were bombing at night to reduce their casualties. The Americans came in saying, you know what? We can't do that because we're just carpet bombing a lot of civilians. We're not getting the targets we need, and a lot of useless death and munitions are being used. They it's came up with a order- trade-off between accuracy and you know, you know, pilots making it home. Yeah, pilots making it home. So here's the thing. The Americans came in and said, we're going to try daylight precision bombing, which sounded like insanity. With the Norden bomb site, they say you can drop a a bomb in a a pickle barrel, all Mm -hmm. right? It was that kind of of technology. It wasn't, but... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it was pretty good for the time. It was a tachometric bomb site used by the United States Army Air Force uh, during the latter parts of of, of the war gave a little sense of accuracy uh, due to airspeed and, and the calculations with this analog computer that would constantly calculate the bomb's trajectory based on the current flight conditions and speed. And it would link to the bomber's autopilot. Believe it or not, they had an autopilot oh, yeah. on this thing yeah, yeah. that let them react quickly and accurately, accurately to the changes of wind and other effects. So this was great if you could see the target. If you can't mm-hmm. see the target, you've yeah. got problems. Yeah. So we have no radar. We've got problems with the tar- targeting issue because of cloud overcast, and we're already off target by 70 to 100 miles south of what we want to be. Travis, maybe you could take us to some of the eyewitness accounts that we have in tonight's program that kind of tell you about what's going on. Yeah, so in the book, Destruction of Dresden, written by an American, includes a chapter of a mission to Dresden that went astray. The 398th Bombardment Group lost its way flying through the cloud layers, as you said, at its predetermined altitude, and when the B-17s emerged above the cloud layers, the lead navigator was not too happy about the formation's position. The lead navigator's name was Colonel Ensign, Colonel Larry P. Ensign. I know it's kind of confusing to say Colonel Ensign. It's like Ensign Colonel. Right. Uh, but give you an idea real quickly about this why and why this is important to know this at this time of the, of the podcast is that he's taking over for another colonel that, that this bombardment group was used to and was killed oh, okay. the previous so week. Yeah, yeah. He's brand new. He's brash. He doesn't want, he doesn't suffer any fools, all right? Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about him later, right. later in the okay. podcast. Yeah, I see where that's going. Yep. Uh, so they, they should have picked up Torgau and headed southeast to the first big city with a river. The Flying Fortress's lead navigators were lo- relying on APS-15 radar for their navigation, the Mickeys, like you said. And the formation had been subject to S-turns to lose time for an on-time arrival over type target. So they slalom back and forth to kind of waste time a little. The dead reckoning navigation of the leader was apparently not as good as it should have been. The formation leader picked up an identified Torgau, identified quotation marks here, and turned on a bearing which would take the bombers to Dresden. Some time passed before the navigator of the deputy group leader radioed the group commander and suggested that in fact they had picked up Freiburg instead of Torgau. He was overruled and reminded about the rules for radio silence over Germany. This is another key aspect. Big, big red flag. Yep. Right. So yeah, they had to keep radio, radio silence, so they, if one person knew something that the other guys didn't know, well... It comes to be that actually several several of these bombers... Kind of picked up on the... Yeah, picked yeah. up that they were in the wrong place, but they couldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, the bomb- bombardiers reported that they could see a river underneath. The Mickey Man, operating the AS-15, began to read off the sighting angles on the screen between the aircraft and the city ahead. So now six sighting angles were read off, and set on the lead bombardier's sighting angle index on the Norden bombsite. There was indeed a river snaking through the city ahead. The bombardier could see no detail of the city to warrant his taking over on a visual run, and a blind attack was made by radar. As they're coming away again, the navigator and the deputy group lead 
again broke radio silence and insisted that they had in fact not bombed Dresden. The group's lead navigator checked with the rest of the navigators and their views also confirmed the deputy lead navigator's opinion. In fact, the 40 bombers of the 398th Bombardment Group had delivered quite a heavy attack on Prague. This was a bitter blow to one of the pilots of the lead group. He was of Czech descent. Yeah, I've heard this before too. Right. He was of Czech descent. Lieutenant Andrew Andrako, flying his B-17, nicknamed Stinker Jr. We've really alluded to the top two or three things that went wrong with this particular issue. And one of the, one of the big problems was the issue of, of forced radio silence. And I, I did a lot of research here to try to get a, a really good viewpoint of what the average guy, the, the average bombardier, the average navigator in one of these 40 aircraft ships would have thought about this. So that led me to one of the websites on the 398ths. Uh, website that uh, is actually fantastic. It's got a lot of information and I went to the Prague bombing run and I found diary entries that would introduce us more to the problems and this particular one shows us more to the problems that the crews had with the new skipper, Colonel Ensign. Alright, so this, this particular entry was by Lieutenant E. Dalton Ebenson uh, from 1945, uh, February 14th, that he kept his own diary. Quote unquote, we had another A and B plan today. There were Kibnitz and Dresden, Germany. We got a new colonel after Colonel Hunter went down last week. He's really making a name for himself as a maniac, etc. He led us today to Dresden, Germany. That is a long haul, so we had a, a full gas load. The crazy guy, or someone, made a mistake, and instead of going to Dresden, we bombed Prague, Czechoslovakia. As a result, we ran out of gas on the way back, so we had to land at a P-47, Pursuit 47 that is, tactical outfit base, in St. Trond, Belgium. Travis, a lot of these guys didn't know, even after they got back to got to Belgium for the refueling, they didn't know until they got back to England that they bombed the wrong target officially. A lot of them had a lot of negative feelings thinking they probably bombed the wrong target, but probably didn't know it was Prague. It was confirmed when they landed back in England. So this was one particular diary entry. There's another one from Lieutenant Robert H. D. Jr. Travis, maybe we can go into that one. Diary entry is from February 14th, 1945. So he writes, The target was Dresden. The MPI was the center of town. We got moderate accurate flak shortly after Saidazay. The number two engine was running rough and we also couldn't keep up. We had a long way to go so we dropped bombs in a field. Only a few bursts of flak at target and we saw the bombs burst. The lead navigator had his head up and we plastered Prague, Czechoslovakia instead of Dresden. We ran completely out of gas, 15 miles the other side of the front lines near Saarbrücken, and crash landed less than 5 miles from the front lines. Both wings were torn off and the ship was split in two. The bottom was torn off. Nobody hurt. I was going to say, that's, yeah. that's pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. We tore down trees, telephone poles, shrubs, and plowed up dirt. We went to Vivier and then to A92, St. Troud. The next day, I visited Liege in Brussels, flew back several days later with another crew, and arrived here to 1945, missing an action letter sent home. Okay, so he didn't make it uh, at the end of the war. So, so that, that diary bit kind of shows you that this wasn't the last bombing run these guys were making in 1945. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you some inside information, the 8th Air Force had suffered so many casualties. Your life expectancy as a B-17 crew member was extremely short. As a matter of fact, the odds were against you. It got so bad to keep morale up so people didn't just crack up knowing that we're going on suicide missions, was that you got to fly 25 missions and then you go home. Mm -hmm. All right? That, but to get to that 25 was unbelievable. 
You ever reach, read Catch-22? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah Catch-22. Or if you've you ever seen the movie uh, that portrays the real-life story of the crew of the Memphis Belle, mm-hmm. that's what they, they were on their 25th mission, and it was a hairy one, and they all made it back. But that's what they're trying to get to Mission 25. This was, when you talk about precision daylight bombing, this is one thing the Brits didn't want to do because they knew the cost was too much. But let the Americans do it because they had all these B-17s, they had all these crew members that the Brits didn't have. Mm-hmm. And, they, and the Americans took the brunt of the load on this one. Um, and it was costly. A lot of men died. Um, and this particular issue, though, this mistake was costly for the, the residents of Prague. Uh, they suffered the big blow on this one. This wasn't as bad as a firestorm that, Travis, you talked about in Dresden. These bombs, some were incendiary, I believe. Others were not. The death toll and the destruction wasn't anywhere close to what it was in Dresden, but yet it was still pretty bad. For one run, it was pretty For bad. For one run. Yeah. 700 yeah. people, and you're talking, you know, over 1,000 that were injured. So the bombing does take its toll, and Prague suffered these heavy losses of over 700 fatalities, 1,050 badly wounded, and about... 2,400 slightly wounded that that were recorded. 93 houses were completely flattened, 190 were severely hit, and 1,500 slightly damaged. On top of all that, 11,000 Proggers suddenly became homeless. Mm -hmm. The raid had one tragic consequence. After the war, the ruins were quickly cleared. One of the bombed houses belonged to a butcher called Maseshka. In the course of the cleanup, rescuers uncovered one cellar which was empty. However, in 1970, when the building was excavated, workers discovered another cellar. Only this one happened to have about 23 human skeletons incarcerated inside. They were all that remained of these survivors of that bombing itself in, that, in 1945. Only the silent marks of desperation scratched into the basement walls bear witness to the endless night of their wait for rescue. Tragically, the light of hope uh, brought by the rescuers in 1970 never, of course, penetrated those walls. And this wait uh, was in vain. For those that's, 23 people. That's a rough story. That's horrific. Yeah. All right, so they're buried alive. There are many stories like this in World War II. And, and Travis, you and I have talked about this kind of off mic. We, we talked about how, how at the time of all these losses of, of people, uh, civilians and people that are in the armed forces at the time, and the sheer loss of, of cities, culture, and all the things that were destroyed in World War II, you have to put yourself in a historical perspective, I think, to understand this a little bit better versus us in the 21st century. These numbers would not be acceptable in Afghanistan. They would not be acceptable in Iraq at all. This would not be acceptable. But at 1945, this was everyday type of numbers that were coming across the board, especially towards the end of the war. Whole different kind it's, of war. It's yeah. a whole different kind of war. At the time, the firebombings of Tokyo were twice as, twice as bad. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, Dresden was horrific, you know, and how people died in, this, in these situations. The people of 1945, I think, grew a callus over this. I think they just wanted the end of the war quickly, and they wanted unconditional surrender. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different kind of war when you're not just saying, okay, if we win these string of battles, we march on the capital and we're done. But it's more like, no, we set our whole country, our whole economy, every man, woman, and child onto a, like a trajectory towards victory. Every raw material, everything we have is just going towards war. It's total war. I mean, it, it, it is total war. And I think we have we gave you some accounts uh, from what we found online and what we found in some other readings about what the Americans and allied figures were. Keeping, keep this in mind. There still was a propaganda war to fight here. When, they, when the American bomber, bombers from, from, the, from this group got back to England, the information that was sent out by bombing command was not, oops, we're sorry. It was the Americans dropped leaflets 
mm-hmm. and, and, and radar shaft you know, mm-hmm. over the target. Those are some pretty heavy leaflets, to say the least, right? It wasn't until a little bit after yeah. that that, that the, it was made public that it was a big nafu, which we don't have to initially say out here. But situation normal, all you know what up. So, so <laughs> all right, to keep it clean. So, yeah, that's, that's the situation here. Uh, on the ground, though, you did have people that lived through this. And some still talk about it as as an attack on them by the Allies on purpose. Still, some of the still some of these civilians felt that the Americans knew that they were off course and just decided to rid themselves of the explosive cargo, which is what you usually do when you're off course mm-hmm. and you you scrap the the bombing run. You got to let go of your your. I was going to say that's normal. You have to, otherwise you're not going to make it home. And you know you can't just wait till you get over the channel to get back to England to do it because you're you're weighted down no, too heavily. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you do it this so you can save gas to get back. This wasn't Nazi occupied city, so a lot of people say, well, it was just par for the course. It was going to happen anyway. A few discount the overcast statement because a lot of people felt that it was a clear day in that February fourteenth, nineteen forty five, and some accounts from the bombardiers on some of these aircrafts from the 106 Bombardment Group, believed that uh, it did clear up at the last minute enough to see the river. Mm-hmm. You know, But it was mainly Still, overcast that day. It's a river flowing south to north. It's just like the Elbe and Dresden. So, so they, just, they just went ahead and threw their colonel under the bus, huh? Well, you know, the colonel... Let me tell you about the colonel for a second. Colonel Lewis P. Ensign of the 602 Bomb Squadron uh, took over for Frank Hunter, who was killed the previous week. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so already he's trying to get these guys into shape under his tutelage. And uh, he, like I said, didn't suffer fools. During the course of this, a lot of the bombardiers felt that uh, he was too strict. He was a maniac, was some of the words mm-hmm. that were used, that he re- refused to have anybody uh, contradict him over, over the radio. He wanted mm-hmm. radio silence. A lot of these guys Which, felt, that, and I read, they felt that he knew that he was bombing the wrong city but didn't care. Yeah, and it might be that, you know, he's going by the book, but obviously the real-life situations are always a little different. Lieutenant Colonel Ensign died in, in the year 2000. I believe he died in San Antonio, uh, Texas. He was given the um, Oak Leaf Cluster from the U.S. Army Air Branch. So he did have a, a pretty illustrious career in uh, the United States Air Force. Uh, but that was not a, a, uh, a very highlight of his career on that February 14, 1945. Travis, wrapping up the program tonight, uh, we've given you some, some evidence to our listeners that, uh, from some detailed viewpoints of some of the navigators, what was going on with the conditions? Where does the justice lie in this? Where is, is, are the Americans to blame on this completely? Is it a, um, just a, a, an act of war? Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a tough one, obviously. I, there were mistakes made that, that led to a bigger mistake. You know, that shouldn't be overlooked, sure. I, you know, I'm, so, I'm, I'm kind of torn in the sense that, that I'm connecting both the bombing of Prague and Dresden, and I shouldn't do that in this sense, because I do feel it was, a, it was a mistake, and I think there was a lot of things that led to that, which is just basically what happens in war. You know, radar goes out, equipment goes out, you make the best decision you can. Proggers have a, a long memory, and I think World War II is, is, is an interesting topic with Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic today, much of it wasn't touched like the rest of Europe. And when you come to see Prague or other places in Czech Republic, it's amazing because you see a lot of ancient architecture that really hasn't been redone, as you would yeah. see in, in other places like Warsaw or Munich and other places. In the late 1990s, several of these men that were on the bombing run had, had visited Prague uh, and it, attended some church services on request of some Czechs that, that invited them in. And a lot of them uh, felt the need to apologize uh, for their run, for this bombing run, mm-hmm. which lends more to the idea that the average guy just didn't, did, this is not something they wanted to do, especially to Prague. 
Uh, it wasn't on yeah. their target run. It was a mistake. It yeah. was, and I, and I really do looking at the evidence feel it was a mistake. But it still makes you hurt to think of all the civilians that died uh, here in Prague and the, the damage that was done. There are some buildings of historical interest that are gone, you yeah, know, and sure. that that's hard too to to see, and that's also a cost of war. Well, they bombed right up the river. That's yeah, right up the river because you, that's you exactly where the most beautiful older buildings were. And so. in, in a particular, uh, one of the ancient mounts here on the Vltava River that overlooks the river valley and uh, Prague Castle, a little further up the river is Visharad. Uh-huh. So some of the historical uh, issues that... That's too bad. Yeah, yeah. Parts, parts of Visharad that go back to the ancient Czechs like what, are gone. Six, six centuries, eight centuries? Right. So way back. Uh, again, casualties of war that are hard to, to hard to get over. We want to thank you all for listening tonight. This is uh, a podcast I wanted to do for quite some time about Ugly Wednesday, as the Czechs call it here, uh, February 14th, 1945. We hope that we've given you some enlightenment about... Daylight Precision Bombing and the effects that it had. So for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.